0: Hello, and welcome to Education Passport. I'm Emma Russo and I'm Alice
1: Roots. Each episode we will bring you interviews and discussions with international educators. Our aim is to speak to teachers from around the world to learn about what they're doing in their classrooms and hopefully inspire you along the way. Kia ora. My name is Tracy Pyle. I um, live and teach in Auckland, New Zealand. I'm a mum to a nine-year-old boy, Hawaii, and a stepmum to two teenage boys, Keanu and Jaden. Been married for ten years to my Samoan husband, Fidelis, and I look after my elderly dad. I also played many years ago touch rugby for New Zealand for about six years, and I got to travel to Singapore, London, Wales, Scotland. Oh, we, tri- we did quite a bit of traveling. It was just awesome.
0: Wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that. That's amazing. <laughs> do you ever get to do that at, at school?
1: Uh, I coach touch, yep. I, I coach our kids, um, seniors and juniors, yep, every year.
0: And how did you get into teaching?
1: Got into teaching through the Teach First NZ program four years ago for two reasons. One, I wanted to learn and grow with my son. And two, I have worked in an office all of my working life, um, and I just felt like I needed to do something more meaningful, you know, to, to leave some, just, just have a more meaningful career. So, yeah, just sort of fell into teaching that way.
0: That's cool. So, you, yeah, you didn't always want to teach, but then it was your son that made you think about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't remember having really good role models, teacher role models at school, so that was probably one of the reasons why I wasn't interested in teaching
0: and presumably that makes you want to be the best role model that you can be yeah.
1: definitely definitely I want to make a difference I want kids to remember me you know it's when I see them in the street or you know years down the track
0: and what do you love about teaching
1: oh the kids the kids of course love, love our kids and that teaching is a is always a challenge like there's no end point to it so that I'm Personally, I'm just always striving to be a, a better teacher. Um, and I, I love creating resources that help the kids' understanding of what they're learning. That's it, is it? The kids are yeah.
0: at, the, at the center of it, really. And then, I guess, slightly more negatively, what's your biggest frustration?
1: Uh, I guess it's teaching to assessments, which is painful. And only teaching to assessments because we have so many. We're, we're constantly testing our kids, so we're constantly running assessments. And we just don't have the time to go outside of that. I wish we could. We, we have tight timeframes, so we've got to work with what we have. The, the curriculum is quite prescriptive and it limits our time and space for, for creativity and for me to develop or to instill a passion in the kids for, for what I teach, which is te reo Māori, Māori language. And also for myself, for myself still to keep that passion alive within myself. So I'd love to have more time and space to be a, more of a creative teacher and not get too bogged down in the admin that we have a lot of reporting, testing, assessments, and all of the extracurricular cultural and sports activities that I'm involved with and meetings, etc. So I guess in the end I'm, I'm constantly time and energy poor and it's, it's mentally and emotionally draining. But my love for the kids and the feeling that I'm, I feel like I'm making a difference is what keeps me going.
0: Definitely. I think that admin and that, what you're saying, mm-hmm. test, test taking is so all consuming. And I definitely find, I think it's awful for my, I really notice it when, if my planning sort of suddenly diminishes because I'm doing all the other stuff. And then actually I teach quite a dull series of yes. lessons and you won't be able to spend that time actually making it interesting and engaging and like you say, creative. Yeah. yeah, But there's only so many hours in the day and ultimately if someone's kind of hammering you for certain certain things then you just can't. I definitely resonate with that. So what does the teaching day look like for you?
1: A typical day starts at 8 30 in the morning. School itself starts at 8 40 like that's your first class but we start 10 minutes earlier in our Māori unit. We have 190 children and six teachers and we start 10 minutes earlier so that We can get all the kids together and we have prayer together and then we sing a song, uh, Ahimaneo or Waiata, which is a song. And then at the same time, any notices that we have, we, we give to the kids at that time. But it also gives us a chance to look at what kids are there for the day or what kids have turned up on time for the day before we send them off to their classes. And we love that because it means we've got our finger on the pulse. You know, we know who's there. We know all of our 190 kids and we know who's there and who's not there and who's coming regularly and who aren't so that we can touch base with parents. So we we get onto the kids a lot quicker through that process. And then our teaching day, we have five periods a day, five one-hour periods a day. Um, We teach four of those five periods. So we have one non-contact period meant for our admin. And then... A twenty-minute interval and a forty-minute lunch break, but we do three duties a week. So I have three lunch duties each week. Yeah, that, that's a typical day. Finish at three pm. Well, the kids finish at three pm.
0: <laughs> I wanted to ask: Is that my unit? Is that typical, or is that because of the area that you work in in the community?
1: Yeah, it's it's not typical, and it came our Maori unit. So there's only there might be more. I mean, I better not say a number. I, I thought there were only two Māori units in mainstream schools in Auckland, but I'm discovering that there are more. It's just the two of us that do have Māori units. We, we have quite large Māori units, so 190 students. 190 students is quite significant for a Māori unit from years 9 to 13. So not, not so typical, but it, does, it works for us. We love it.
0: And what's the role of that unit, Cause Presumably, everyone's being taught together in their lessons, or is it
1: distinct? Oh, um, so there are approximately 25 to 30 kids in each class, pretty much. They go off to, we, so it's a bilingual unit. So it's taught in both Māori and English. The junior students, years 9 and 10 and 11, have most of their classes taken within our Māori unit. They only go what we call off-site to the mainstream school for science and PE. Otherwise, all of the other classes are taught in our Māori unit, which is English, Maths, Māori and Social Studies are all taught in our Māori unit yeah the senior classes the language is compulsory and another and a cultural class is compulsory and then the senior classes have between two and three options to go into the mainstream area
0: is it operating like one school or is it operating like two schools
1: yeah there's a real there is a little there is quite a bit of a division i guess we we are operating like our own little school within (laughs) within a bigger school and it doesn't go down well with the rest of our school. So 1,100 students all up at our school, 190 in our Māori unit. And I guess it, it definitely works for us because we do get to know our kids really, really well and we get to know their parents really well too. So we've got strong relationships with their parents. So if anything happens, we can get onto that really quickly and sort that out. So their attendance is always really high because, you know, they can't get away with much in, in, a, you know, in a unit of 190 compared to a school of 1,100. So we know that our mainstream kids fall through the gaps for a lot longer because the school is, you know, because they're in a larger group. So, yeah, we, we love that, that we're able to really keep our finger on the pulse with our kids and get to know their parents really, really well. It's that Yeah,
0: that kind of small, essentially, like you say, small mm-hmm. school life sounds really useful. So you recently took up in an amazing cultural competition, uh, so it would be great to hear a bit more about that.
1: So yes, we've just completed our annual Auckland Regional Secondary School Kapahaka competition. It's the largest Māori and Pacific Island festival held in the world, and it is in its 43rd year. Um, It's held across four days and has six cultural stages. And it around 90,000 people with 9,000 students within Auckland performing on the six stages. And about 60 schools are involved in that. This year, my Māori unit with our six staff or consisting of our six staff co-hosted the Māori stage with the help of all of our students' parents. We also had 150 performers from our Māori unit entered into three divisions of the Māori stage. We're only one of two schools in Auckland that enter groups into, or more than one group, into divisions in the Māori stage. All of the performances were live streamed and our students were... Lucky enough to place in all three divisions. So we had two thirds and one second. So yeah, we're really wrapped for our kids. They worked really, really hard for a long time. From their first day of school this year, they were put into teams and they were practicing from the very first day. So yeah, very proud of them.
0: Did it make you weep? I felt like it would just make me cry <laughs> when I watched.
1: <laughs> oh, that's great. That's perfect that it moved you. <laughs>
0: That's amazing. And how did how did you find time outside of your teaching
1: Uh, to do all that? Oh well, thankfully I'm not one of the the tutors of the groups. I'm terrible at kapahaka. Terrible. That's not one of my strengths. (laughs) I have strengths in other areas, like admin and other things, and organising all of the whanau the families to come in and with the hosting. So I had I I had to do other things. it, It was a crazy time, like the. The week before, probably two weeks before the competition, we, you know, we had a big meeting with parents. About 90 parents turned up. It was, it was really great and offered their support. Um, and then I was coordinating parents to come on different days in different areas. There was lots of work to be done. And so coordinating that, which was awesome in the sense that I got to know the year nine children's parents. And those parents gave up time. Like they took leave from their jobs so that they could come and help us each day. So it was really, really nice of them. it was nice that the kids placed, you know, they were were able to secure a placing. So, you know, it sort of made it all worthwhile for everybody that everybody's hard work all paid off. So two weeks leading into it, the week of the festival, of course, was just very long, long days. Um, And then the week after, we weren't expecting it to be Crazy, but it's it just worked out that way. It was just a really terrible week, so I think we're still a bit jaded from the whole the whole thing, the whole event. But it was all worth it, obviously. When you see the kids on the stage, (laughs) regardless of whether they place or not, when you see them perform, it's just yeah, it just makes everything worthwhile.
0: Definitely, and but yeah, maybe it'd be better timed just for a holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm just going to take a break from interviewing Tracy so that you can hear from three of her amazing students and their thoughts on taking part in Polyfest.
1: Kia ora. could I please ask all of your names, age and cultural background please? Hi, my
2: name is Richard Vlavel, I am 17 and I am Māori. Kia ora. my name is Tasha White, I am 18 years of age and I am Māori and Pākehā ora, my name's Renee. I'm seventeen, and I'm talking and Maori.
1: Awesome. I'm just going to ask you all a couple of questions about um, ASB Polyfest, held every year in Auckland. Firstly, what do you love about Polyfest?
2: I love when we can just express ourselves on the stage and have fun. Yeah. For me, it's making my family proud and seeing all the other schools from. All over Auckland, perform on that stage, on all stages. For me, it also has to be expressing my culture and eating the food because we get to taste the Chinese food every day. <laughs>
1: yeah. Anything else about Polyfest?
2: Um, we get to learn songs and we get to contribute those songs to our loved ones that oh. pass away. Like Alcohol, Polyborna, that was the HAD.
1: What skills do you learn that may help you at Polyfest that may help you in the future?
2: A very important one we learn is confidence um, because we use it a lot. We have to perform in front of hundreds of people on the day and when we train. Commitment, showing up to practices all the time, working hard for your spot that you're in, and it all paying off on the stage. Striving for the best because not only can you strive for the best, you can make yourself better by learning from your fail- failures and your mistakes, which makes you stronger in every single way.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you three very much. Uh, just one last thing. This podcast is going out to teachers around the world. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about school in New Zealand or... Anything at all. Or...
2: Australia, okay. New Zealand, the best. <laughs> <laughs> all the kaiko are like teachers. They help like every single student the best that they can to their ability. Yes, I agree because we get a lot of support from them. That's why we, uh, striving for the best.
1: That's awesome. Thank you all very much. Kilda, thank
0: you. <laughs> So, you kind of suggested it a bit, but um, what makes your school
1: unique? We have 1,100 students, and most of them are Māori and Pacific Island cultures. I think it's about 46% of our school are Māori, and the 30 something percent are Pacific Island, are from our Pacific Islands. So, that's, that's almost 80% of the school are Māori and Pacific Island. The community that we live in is a low socioeconomic community. Part of our uniqueness is that is our Māori bilingual unit, plus there's also a Samoan language unit. We also have a services academy for students who are wanting to take a career path in the services, Army, Navy, or Air Force, and a health science academy as well. And then offsite from the school, we have a teen parent unit. That's a large part of our community as well. And a satellite school or class for the blind and low vision.
0: It sounds like you've got a lot of specialist people specialist teams who can really target specific circumstances and work with yeah. whatever their situation, which is really positive. Yeah. So what's the biggest challenge then with all those different students that you face on a day-to-day basis?
1: Personally, for, for me in my classroom, it's the undifferentiated teaching as being able to cater to all ability levels in each of my classes. And I have four classes, so I guess that's why I'm, always striving to be a better teacher is you know as being able to cater to all levels in every class
0: yeah I think I always read studies that say that being able to have a differentiated classroom produces the best outcomes. but that's always contingent on time isn't it
1: sure is
0: the best the, you know if you had three times as much time then all your lessons would be beautifully differentiated and targeted for everybody there but yeah you need both hand in hand I think
1: yeah, yeah. When I was studying, one of my um, lecturers, she would tell us, before I became a teacher, she would say, look, not every lesson, you know, you're, you're going to have different lessons in your classes. She says the ultimate is to have a gourmet lesson. It's full of lots of different things in it. She says, but but then some days you might just have a healthy salad lesson and then other days you might just have a bread and butter lesson. But <laughs> She says, but try to make the bread and butter lessons maybe only like once or twice a fortnight, maybe once a fortnight otherwise you strive for a healthy salad to a gourmet lesson but she says that at the same time you can't always have a gourmet lesson so I thought that was a neat analogy I think of that with my lessons I love that analogy
0: I'm, yeah <laughs> I'm gonna keep that definitely yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, that makes you, that's gonna make me feel a bit better as well about some of the yeah. bread and yeah. butter lessons <laughs> And are your schools fit for purpose? So are they set up for all the things that you want to
1: do? Uh definitely not. Um, my school lacks IT in every area. We, we have only two computer labs, which has about 30 computers in each. And that's to cater for the 1,100 students that we have. And then you have to book way in advance, obviously, because there's so many people wanting to use them. So my students primarily use pen and books, their books and their pens you know pros and cons to that as well but because of where we're trying to lead them in their career pathways they're at a real disadvantage because we're not computer literate.
0: Yeah and I suppose in the the wider workplace that's going to make you competitive if you have those skills or not. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Okay so I just had some questions about the wider education system and some things to do with that. Do you think that your education system as a whole is a representative reflection of your New Zealand society.
1: Yes, I do, actually, the shorters. I believe our education system reflects our society values of, of the haves versus the have-nots, although in saying that our government has just recently changed near the end of last year. So we, our education system operates within a decile system of one to ten And it was implemented in 1995. The intention of implementing a a decile system was to target funding to lower decile schools. So decile 1 is the lowest decile and decile 10 is the high side where the communities have a lot more resources, a lot more finances available. Decile 1 are 10% of schools with the highest proportion of students from low socioeconomic communities. These schools are ranked alongside the, the census every five years. What eventuated from this ranking was that higher decile schools became highly desirable and parents actively sought out and sent their children right across town to these higher decile schools. The higher decile schools also meant uh, more desirable communities to live in and housing prices in these areas soared pretty much. Lower decile schools ended up with less students with higher needs. So the new government that has just come in, their education minister, Nikki Kaye, Um, who is a female, recently stated that for too long schools have been stigmatised and wrongly judged by their decile number. She also indicated that they will be changing the education system because of this stigma.
0: It sounds like it came from a good place. It sounds like it came with the right intention of actually explicitly saying we're going to have more money where it's needed. Yeah. Do you think it would have worked if it was not shared? Or would it just be obvious?
1: where the I agree. So what, what they ended up doing was they would publish like this list, that like the top 100 schools in Auckland or the, the schools were are ranked in Auckland. So that, they were publishing, I don't know who who was publishing, but I remember reading it often, um, seeing it in the newspapers and going, oh, where does my old school for? This is before I became a teacher. And, you know, so you would see where the, who the top, well, all of the schools in Auckland, we have must have a, at least 100 of them. And they were ranked from one to 100. And so obviously the lower you know the 90s the 80s, somethings down to the hundreds were not desirable schools that's how it came across and my school was definitely my school would probably be about 98 99 it's <laughs> right down there wow. so yeah yeah the intention was good and it just hasn't eventuated that way you know with the publishing of these lists and mm-hmm. other things
0: yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm very hopeful for you with a yeah a change of government and everything that anyway we get in the news about your new government kind of indicates that there's going to be some positive change. I hope. Yes. Yeah. Cause the, yeah, the right intention is, like you say, is, is clearly around. Mm. I think because our schools most it's mostly through inspections, but because those inspections get published, and then there's a really prominent newspaper mm. that publishes like good schools rankings, mm. and very similar thing with the housing if you look on any house website it tells you whether there's good schools in the area like and shares that information when you're looking at the property so like you say it has all these unintended consequences that are really evident
1: yeah and detrimental to you know the low socioeconomic communities eh, which we have a lot of Mm.
0: yeah it just self-perpetuates then doesn't it that brings me on to my next question because i know that in the uk there's a huge attainment gap between the people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, and is that something that you see in the New Zealand system?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, In the 2015 PISA results, we New Zealand fed above the OECD average for Pākehā, which is New Zealand born children, Pākehā and European and Asian students and a relatively high proportion of Māori and Pacific Island students scored below the OECD average in all three subjects. So there's a wide gap between the top 10% and the bottom 10% than most other OECD countries. And as I mentioned before, like our school is made up of 70, almost 80% Māori and Pacific students. We are a decile one school and we see the difference every day in the classroom in terms of poverty, lack of food and clothing and overpopulated or transient housing, so kids not coming To school, and then when we when we chase them up, we find out that they're actually homeless, or they're um, living in their cars, or um, they had been moving from family house. You know, like boarding with families, and then they're just sort of because the houses were overpopulated, was tense times and tense environment, and the next minute they moved out again. So we see a lot of that, and really hungry kids. (laughs) I mean, kids are hungry anyway, but just kids who go a whole day, you know, will go the whole day at school often with nothing, you know, with no food. So I've I've been feeding kids in my classroom since since my first year of school. I have toaster, kettle, they have cup of tea, they can have cup of tea and toast and, and in the winter they can have cup of soup and noodles. And if they're really lucky they'll have a Milo like I'll have a Milo. And it just all stemmed from seeing and talking to kids that just had no food and would be training all day with kapahaka and they they'd be late you know they'd start early morning they'd train right through intervals lunch breaks after school and they just would be training on nothing at all so you've been feeding them for the past four years pretty much i don't see it stopping at all because there's just such a high need
0: yeah there has been a big movement here there's been a lot of places that provide breakfast clubs particularly because like you say then you're starting off your day and you've got the energy to do all those things that are required of you and um, so how is being a teacher viewed in New Zealand society
1: I guess there's a view that teaching is a low status profession and teachers themselves feel overworked underpaid and um, I just read an article recently that said that um, teachers only tend to stay in the job for five years um, and then they burn out and they go and look for something else. And it's true. It's, it's true. Like at the end of last year, we lost oh, probably about 20 teachers from our school, between 18 and 20 teachers all left at the end of last year. Uh, A few went on to other teaching jobs or they moved out of town because Auckland is is an expensive city to live in. So, you know, it's quite attractive to teach in a smaller community where the housing, where everything is cheaper and you could possibly save to afford to buy a house in a region. Can't really afford one in in Auckland at the moment. So, yeah, I, I guess it's true. And this is my fourth year of teaching now and I am feeling quite tired. I still love it. But I I can see now I couldn't see before in my first three years, but I can see this year that the five year mark would be a really telling mark in terms of, you know, of just really feeling the burnout and feeling like you need to do something else for a while. I hope that's not me. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's so it's so interesting. I feel like, and this is obviously probably because of intertwined history, but the the system and its effects are so similar here. There is a huge shortage of teachers both being recruited but Mm. particularly being retained and Mm. there's very little focus on how the system is trying to retain teachers and I really think that if you keep teachers healthy and happy your system will just flourish because if you keep people that know the children in their jobs that they're quite content with then like good things will happen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like, I I don't go up to our main staff room often because we're right at the bottom of the school. So we just like, you know, have our tea breaks in our own area. Um, But when I do go up to our main staff room, gosh, there's so many unhappy teachers. And I just think that our senior management who are in that staff room every day should really take notice of that and start doing things, you know, and it's just little things for our teachers that your your hard work and effort is acknowledged, there. Eh?
0: So final question, is there anything then that you can see in other education systems that people are really doing well?
1: I love what I've read about Finland's education system. You know, they start school at seven years old. There's no measuring at all for the first six years of school and their education is 100% state funded and their teachers have fully funded master's degrees and then only the top 10% of the graduates are selected to be teachers so I think that would go a long way here for example.
0: It really raises the status of teaching doesn't mm. it and mm. makes people are fully equipped. Mm. Thank you so much to Tracy for speaking to me, I hope you found this as interesting as I did. I'm also definitely going to take away the gourmet buffet, salad and bread and butter lesson metaphor. To play us out here is the first section of her school's performance at the Polyfest competition that she talked about. You can see the full video by clicking on the link in the show notes, which I highly recommend as it is completely brilliant. Enjoy!